Hello and welcome to Speak the Words, a Stormlight Archive podcast. I'm Sean. And I'm Mango. This is a podcast where I try to walk Mango through the events of The Way of Kings, the first book in the Stormlight Archive series. Uh, normally, we cover each chapter. You know, you listen to this podcast and you get each and every chapter of The Way of Kings. But <laughs> this week, um... We are going to very quickly blow through a couple of them at the beginning because we've already recorded this week. And there were technical difficulties that, you know, it happens. It is what it is. Thankfully, the stuff that we covered uh, wasn't super important. But with the way this podcast works, um, we can't just redo it, you know? Yeah. So so we're going to move on. But we're going to we're going to cover what uh what we what we covered last week. and. uh and 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 get it all get it all right before we move on or what we were supposed to cover this week before we move on to what we are actually going to cover this week. Another reason for why this episode's different is I'm house sitting this weekend. So I'm set up on my laptop with like half of my recording supplies. So I'm just using like earbuds instead of my headphones. You sound the same. I know I sound the same, but I can hear myself now. So to start this week off, start this week off actually, I'm going to bring this up. We passed a thousand, a thousand plays on Anchor. Uh, we mentioned that when we first tried to record this week, but obviously you haven't heard that. And actually, Mango, if I look right now, I can't get the exact number because I have to look on my phone because I'm not logged in on my computer right now. But we're at 1,100 plays now. <laughs> so, I know. People Pretty listen crazy. to this? That's weird. I know. I don't know why people do it, but they do. That's, it's nuts. Thanks, everybody, so much. We had a much more heartfelt, like, we talked about it for a couple minutes in the first go-around. But, you know, we really appreciate it. Yeah. It's cool. It's crazy that there's already a thousand plays and we're on, like, episode 13 or something. That's nuts. Mm-hmm. But, as always, we're gonna recap what happened last week, and I'm, I'm gonna help a little bit this time. Uh, I'm gonna help Mango a little bit more than I normally would. Last, last episode, what happened? Oh, yeah, we gotta recap that, too. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about that. God. Uh, uh, what happened last, last time, Mango? Um. So, there was a few things. There was a Kaladin flashback where he found out that his dad actually did steal the spheres. Um. And Kaladin was not happy about that, but he's still gonna go to school anyway. Well, at as of that point. Um, mm -hmm. And he decided to go by Kaladin instead of Cal. Yes. Um, and then there was a Shalon chapter where she and Yasna went out in the city at night. What the hell? In, oh yeah, in alley, and um, a bunch of thugs started to like come towards them and were clearly gonna just kill them instead of rob them, and so Yasna killed them with the soulcaster, and uh, I personally think she was justified because uh, basically there was this whole theory discussion about it where it was like well if I kill them they're not going to kill or hurt a bunch of other people and it was also self defense because they were going to kill me meanwhile Shalon was like it's never okay to kill people ever how dare you um pretty much and so Shalon was finally like no I think Yasna doesn't deserve to have the Soulcaster, so I finally don't feel bad about stealing it. So she stole it. And then there was a Kaladin chapter um, where he got strung up in the high storm. And, yeah. Uh, it hurt a lot, and then all of a sudden there was like an <laughs> eye of the storm where basically all of his senses were gone, and he couldn't feel anything he couldn't hear anything and he felt like he shouldn't say anything to break the silence um he couldn't see anything until like 
for a minute there was a face that you could see. Um, and uh, he was holding a sphere, and the sphere got infused in the storm all of a sudden. But then, afterward, after the storm, uh, the bridge four come out to find him, and they're shocked to find him still alive. He suddenly comes conscious, and out of his hand falls the sphere that Teth gave him? Yep. And uh, it wasn't infused, and it was supposed to be infused. And we saw that it was infused before, but uh, it wasn't I'm sure infused that doesn't anymore. mean anything. Um, and Teth knows something. Uh, that was what was supposed to be last week. Well, it was last week, but... And then, new episode. Here's what we're going to do for this recap that we missed uh, because of the uh, technical difficulties. I do want to make sure we get the epigraphs in. So okay. I am going to read at least those. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the chapter name that we missed out on in the epigraph. And I'll kind of help Mango get us through what was covered in that episode or in that chapter. So mm -hmm. last last time we started with chapter 38 in Visigur. It was a Kaladin chapter. And the epigraph was born from the darkness. They bear its taint still marked upon their bodies, much as the fire marks their souls. I consider Gashash son Navamis a trustworthy source, though I'm not certain about this translation. Find the original quote in the 14th book of Seld and retranslate it myself, perhaps. And Mango, do you remember what happened in this chapter? This yeah, Kaladin so, chapter? uh, Teft was watching over Kaladin in the bunker. Hmm? Or barracks, or whatever. Um, and... Kaladin, you know, hasn't been conscious for a bit, and he's think Teft is thinking about the whole sphere falling out of Cal's hand, not infused when it was supposed to be, and he decides to try something, and he gives Kaladin another sphere that is infused. And, uh, once Kaladin is holding it, he jolts, like, kind of conscious, except not really, and his body starts healing itself, and it's, like, glowing blue and whatever. Yeah. And... The storm he, he drains the stormlight from the sphere. Yeah. Like, visibly. He, yeah. This is our first, like... True confirmation. He is absorbing Stormlight. And yes. Stormlight kind of starts to heal some of his wounds from the storm. Um, and then the light gets expended, and Tef takes the sphere back. And he mentions something about how the Invisigurs had been waiting for this to happen for a long time, but they were dead because of what Teft did. Yes. Um, and then Teft decides that he's gonna get more uh, spheres to help um, Kaladin get better. Yeah, and that was that chapter. The next chapter was chapter 39, Burned Into Her. The epigraph there was, Within a heartbeat, Alizarv was there, crossing a distance that would have taken more than four months to travel by foot. Uh, another folk tale, this one recorded in Among the Dark-Eyed by Kalanum, page 102. Stories of instantaneous travel in the Oathgates pervade these let tales. And Oathgates, um, I mentioned, was capitalized. The O is capitalized, which I drew a connection to the prelude at the very beginning of the book, where the heralds were talking about the Oath Pact. Mm. Uh, and this was a Shallan chapter, and uh, this there wasn't a whole lot in there, but there were a couple things. Do you remember anything a about lot this of chapter? Gross flirting between Shallan and what's his face? Not yet. That was oh, well, different later. Yeah, okay. really. The only thing that happened in this one was that Yasna, uh, Yasna Shallan was drawing in her room, and she started to draw like. 
like she realized that she had stopped and she'd drawn this scene of this fine dining hall and a dead man on the floor, blood around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she talks to Nanbalat, but nothing in there is really important. She pretty much it's, just comes to it's the... It's just that they're coming to get her in a week, and so she has a week to uh, avert suspicion. Like, she she can't just get out of there immediately because it'll be suspicious if both she and the Soulcaster disappear at the same time. So she has to try and cast suspicion on someone else before she leaves. Mm-hmm. That was that chapter. The next chapter was chapter 40, Eyes of Red and Blue. It was a Kaladin chapter, and the epigraph was Death upon the lips, sound upon the air, char upon the skin. From The Last Desolation by Ambrian, line 335. And then this chapter... Kaladin wakes up, and he goes outside to where the rest of the Bridge Four is training. And, uh, it's been ten days since the storm, which is ridiculous, because it should have been weeks for him to heal. Um, but, nope, it was ten days. And the other Bridge Runners who had been injured before we're now healed enough to start practicing the side carry with everyone else. And, uh, I don't know if that's important, but I just remember that. Um, and then they all see that Kaladin is awake long before he should be awake and, or healed. And they're all, like, looking at him reverently and stuff. And then, is it this chapter where the... Light-eyed lady comes over and is like, "We're in charge of your bridge team now." And uh, um, is that that episode or that chapter? I think uh, it, it was. I, no, I think it was later. It was later in the chapter that that happened, or later in the. And uh, it was last week, or it was in the last stuff we covered, but it wasn't in this chapter. The other thing in this chapter was Kaladin talked a, a lot with another one of the bridgemen named Sigzel, who was another like really well-learned man. Okay. Uh, and it, a lot of the ending of this chapter was Kaladin pretty much being very depressed and kind of yeah, giving he, into his darkness. Yeah. He's kind of feeling hopeless because, like, while his bridge team survived that day, they're just gonna end up being killed either on bridge runs or by their superiors. And... They also caused a lot of other people to die as well. So he's kind of feeling hopeless that no matter what he does, they're all just destined to die. And he keeps remembering the quote, Bridgemen weren't supposed to survive. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Um, next chapter after that was chapter 41 of Alds and Milp. This was... um. A nice little play on Of Mice and Men in the title there. Uh, this was another flashback chapter, and uh, it was five and a half years ago. You remember what happened in the, this flashback? Wait, which flash? Oh, that flashback. Um, base, is it the... It's the one with uh, Rashon's son. Okay, yeah. So, um... They went out hunting or something, Rashon and his son. And they were both injured a lot to the point where the son couldn't be saved and Rashon, but Rashon was like demanding that they save his son first. And basically they had to drug Rashon so he went to sleep and then they had to drug the son so that he would die peacefully. Um, and... It was like, they're not going to be happy about you saving Rashon instead of his son. And then there was like this comparison about who you should save first in a medical situation. And um, they were performing surgery on Rashon and pulling debris out. Um, and at one point the blade comes almost 
close to a really important artery that if they cut it, Rashawn would die within minutes. And you can see uh, Kaladin's dad hesitate, but then he ends up not cutting it. Mm -hmm. Um, And Kaladin is like, why don't we just kill him? Then we wouldn't have to deal with anything. And then there was the whole... Uh, yeah. So from his dad. Uh, you read that. You yeah. That. So I am gonna read this because it's it, it's important for the future. But um, Kaladin is like, hey, why didn't you why didn't you just kill that guy? Everything would have been better if it was if he was gone. And Liren says, somebody has to start. Somebody has to step forward and do what is right because it is right. If nobody starts, then others cannot follow. And then he also says, the light eyes don't care about life, so I must. And that's pretty much... And uh, at the end of that chapter was just Kaladin being like, I could kill someone if I had to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next chapter was chapter 42, Beggars and Barmaids. This was a Shallan chapter. Uh, the epigraph was, Like a high storm, regular in their coming, yet always unexpected. The word desolation is used twice in reference to their appearances. See pages 57, 59, and 64 of Tales by Hearthlight. So this is the gross flirting chapter. Yeah, there was gross flirting. There was some other important stuff in here. Um, I will read this exchange really quickly. Um, where Shallan was just sketching on her bed and she heard a voice say, What are you? And she like jumps up and she looks around. She asks who's there and nobody responds. Oh yeah, and um, then she grabs a servant and is like, were you in my room? And mm-hmm. she's like, yes, but I didn't say anything. And then Shalon's like, well, don't come in my room. Or something. Yeah. Uh, and then... Capsule. Well, here, really quickly, before that, before uh-huh. Capsule shows up, she does look at Yasna's notebooks, and just so that everybody knows, in the notebooks we find out that the epigraphs from this part so far have all been from Yasna's notes. Oh, yeah. Um... And then there's a bunch Yawning. of nasty flirting, like we said. Yeah, yeah. Gross flirting. Um, Shalon mentions that Yasna thought that Capsule would try to get Shalon to help him steal her soulcaster. And he basically admits that's like, yeah, I was gonna do that, but the other Ardents thought that was a bad idea, so we're not gonna do that. Um, that's all I can remember, really. Yeah, that's pretty much all of importance that happens. The chapter just ends with her going and sitting with Yasna and trying to, like, make the most of the time she has left with Yasna. Because mm-hmm. um, she likes last... learning, but she can't she does. spend the time learning because she has to get out of there. The last chapter that we covered was chapter 43, The Wretch. Uh, the epigraph was, they lived out in the wilds, always awaiting the desolation. Or sometimes, a foolish child who took no heed of the night's darkness. A child's tale, yes, but this quote from Shadows Remembered seems to hint at the truth I seek. See page 82, the fourth tale. And this was a Kaladin chapter. Uh, this is the one where you were talking about the new, uh, the new light-eyed lady who's in charge of the bridge oh, crews. Yeah. She shows up here and pretty much just is like, hey, you guys are on chasm duty all the time now. Mm-hmm. And then they go down in the chasm and basically there's just a lot of talk between everybody. It's like, this is hopeless, whatever. One thing I will bring up while they're going down into the chasm, that's important. Just because I want to I want to hit on this. Syl says that she's helped kill. Uh, she's helped men kill before. Oh, yeah. Anyways, you can continue. Uh, there is also one point where he looks over the side and is like, same as the be- beginning, like part one. Mm-hmm. He's like, I could just jump. Like, it would be easier. Everything would mm-hmm. be over. But then he doesn't. And he goes down into the chasm. And basically what the other guys are saying is basically like driving him crazy. So he wanders off. And... Oh, wait, no, before that, 
before that, um, they, the guys are talking and one of them mentions the old saying from the Lost Radiance and like their motto, which is mm -hmm. what we say at the end of our podcast, mm -hmm. life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. And, uh, that's the first time anybody's ever heard you say it. <laughs> yeah. I said it at the end of the last episode, but then everything broke. So, <laughs> uh, so he kind of internalizes that, and then he wanders off and kind of has a chat. It's like, everything's hopeless, but then Sola's like, is it really that hopeless? And then he's like, you're right. And then he <laughs> recites the quote to himself, and he's like, I'm going to choose to live before I end up dying or whatever. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, life, death is coming, so you make the best of your life while you can. Yeah. And then he goes back to the other dude. He's like, we have one chance. We can get out of here. I can teach you to fight. And they're all like, well, giving us like a chance is better than just sitting here waiting to die. So why not? And so now they're going to make a plan of how to escape. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. There's During that chapter, there's a lot of talk of the Lost Radiance among uh, Bridge Four. Um, and Teft is pretty much the only person that seems to be defending them. And everybody kind of thinks that he's weird to do so. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> that was the Lost episode. Just like the Lost Radiance, the Lost episode of Speak the Word. So now, Mango, I need you to buckle in. Oh, let's go. We already spent 20 minutes recapping yeah, this, everything. <laughs> this is going to be a longer episode. Buckle in, because oh, here it comes. Uh, chapter 44, The Weeping, and this is a Kaladin chapter, and it's a flashback from five years ago. Uh, the chapter starts with uh, Kaladin talking about how he hates the weeping, and pretty much they explain that what the weeping is, is it's the end of... It, it the end of an old year and the coming of a new one. It's f the last four weeks of the year. And during those four weeks, it just rains constantly, but not like a storm, not like a high storm, but just kind of like it drizzles for four weeks straight. Mm. Um, and there's only one high storm during that time at exactly the middle of the weeping. And... Kaladin just talks about, uh, he's lying on the roof on his house in Hearthstone. Uh, he's watching as another army passed through the town. Rishon had made an appearance to welcome the warlord High Marshal Amaram, apparently a distant cousin of Rishon's. Rishon had been reclusive since the death of his son. Many of the others liked the weeping. There were no high storms save for one right in the middle. Kaladin longed for the sun and the wind, though. Mm. Tien climbed up onto the rough... Uh, onto the roof, not the rough, onto the roof, and laid down next to Kaladin. He told Kaladin that he'd made something and gave him a small wooden horse with in intricate carvings. The details were amazing. Tien says he got in trouble because he'd, he'd supposed to have been making a chair. How is it you can always smile, Kaladin thought. It's dreadful outside, your master treats you like creme, and your family is slowly being strangled by the city lord. And yet you smile. How, Tien? And why is it that you make me want to smile too? Kaladin says that Lirin had spent another one of the spheres meant for his schooling, and Tien tells him that things are never as bad as it seems. Tien's smile banishes the dark thoughts from Kaladin's mind. Hesina, their mother, joins the two of them on the roof and asks what they're talking about. Tien says that Kaladin is worried about Lirin spending the spheres, and she says that he'll be old enough to leave in two months. Kaladin says he, that he wishes they would come with him. Hesina points out to them that the first time Lirin had spent the spheres, it had been on bandages that they didn't need. He was letting Rishon think he's winning. She says that soon Kaladin will be gone with the spheres and things will calm down. Once he's in Carbranth, he'll be able to get an education and do what he wants with his life. If he doesn't want to be a surgeon, he could become an ardent or a storm warden. And storm wardens are people who um, study high storms and predict them. Mm. Kaladin says he wants to be a surgeon like his father. Eventually, Liren joins them and says that there's a gathering in the square. As they walk, Liren says that, the Rish that Rishon was making an appearance and called for a full town meeting. Rishon's carriage rolled into the center of town, and the city lord exited the carriage. He looked like a completely different man, with a wooden leg and an unkempt face. 
Another man, another man stepped out, a dignified man wearing a green formal military uniform, High Marshal Amaran. Finally, Laurel stepped out. Kaladin's heart raced when he saw her. Liran pointed out that Laurel was wearing a bride's prayer on her sleeve, then tells Kaladin that he'd heard that Rashone himself was going to marry her now that his son was dead, so that their family wouldn't lose the connections she offered. Ugh. Yeah. Rashone introduced Amaram to the crowd, and the High Marshal stepped forward. He says that usually he would leave recruitment to one of his officers, but since he was in town visiting Rashone, he decided to do it himself. He says that the king has taken most of the army with him to fulfill the vengeance pact, and that he was now undermanned. This would be just about a year after Gavilar was killed. So they'd probably just be starting their uh, war on the Shattered Plains. Mm. He says that his fight isn't as glorious as the War for Vengeance, but that their land still needed defending. The tour will be for four years, and then after that, they can either return home or sign on for a further duty. He asks for volunteers. Jo Jost, an Arbory volunteer. Jost's mother objecting. Three more boys step forward. And an older man, the man whose daughter Kaladin had been unable to save, also joined them. No more men step forward, and Amaram tells Rashon that they'll need a list. Liren asks about the list, and Amaram says that the army must be replenished. Rashon had the duty and honor of deciding which men to send. Rashon tells the scribe to read the first four names and the last one. I'm going to read from the book here. Alexia looked down at her list, speaking with a dry voice. Agel, son of Marf. Call, son of Taleb. Kaladin looked up at Liren with apprehension. He can't take you, Liren said. We're of the second non and provide an essential function to the town. I as surgeon, you as my only apprentice. By the law, we are exempt from conscription. Rashon knows it. Rish uh, Habrin, son of Arafik, Alexia continued. Jorna, son of Lotz. She hesitated, then looked up. Tien, son of Liren. No! There was a <laughs> no! <laughs> no! There was a stillness across the square. Even the rain seemed to hesitate for a moment. Then all eyes turned toward Tien. The boy looked dumbfounded. Liren was immune as town surgeon, Kaladin immune as his apprentice. But not Tien. He was a carpenter's third apprentice. Not vital, not immune. Hasina gripped Tien tightly. No! Liren stepped in front of them, defensive. Kaladin stood, stunned, looking at Rashon, smiling, self-satisfied Rashon. We took his son, Kaladin realized, meeting those beady eyes. This is his revenge. I, Tien said. The military? For once he seemed to lose his confidence, his optimism. His eyes opened wide and he grew very pale. He fainted when he saw blood. He hated fighting. He was still small and spindly despite his age. Liren says that Tien is too young, and Amaram says that in the cities, boys as young as eight and nine are accepted into the military. Liren says they're trained as officers, not sent into battles. Amaram frowns and asks how old Tien is. Liren says that he's 13. Amaram says that he's heard of Liren and turns to Rashon. He tells his cousin that he doesn't have time to engage in petty small-town politics and asks him to pick another boy. And I'm going to read from the book again. It is my choice, Rashon insisted, given me by the dictates of law. I spend those the town can spare. Oh, I hate him. Well, that boy is the first one we can spare. Liren stepped forward, eyes full of anger. High Marshal Amaram caught him by the arm. Do not do something you would regret, Darkborn. Rashon has acted according to the law. You hid behind the law, sneering at me, surgeon, Rashon called to Liren. Well, now it turns against you. Keep those fears. The look on your face at this moment is worth the price of every one of them. I, Tien said again. Kaladin had never seen the boy so terrified. Kaladin felt powerless. The crowd's eyes were on Liren, standing with his arm in the grip of the light-eyed general, locking his gaze with Rashon. I'll make the latter runner boy for a year or two, Amaram promised. He won't be in combat. It's the best I can do. Everybody is needed in these times. Liren slumps, bowing his head. Rashon laughs as he and Laurel climb back into this carriage. She doesn't look at Kaladin once. Amaram tells the recruits that, that what they're allowed to bring and tells them to report to Sergeant Hav in two hours. I'm going to read from the end of the chapter. Tien stared after him, pale as a whitewashed building. Kaladin could see his terror at leaving his family, his brother, the one who always made him smile when it rained. It was physically painful for Kaladin to see him so scared. It wasn't right. Tien should smile. That's who he was. He felt the wooden horse in his pocket. Tien always brought him relief when he felt pained. Suddenly, it occurred to him that there was something he could do in turn. It's time to stop hiding in the room when someone else holds up a globe of light, Kaladin thought. It's time to be a man. 
Bright Lord Amaram, Kaladin yelled. The general hesitated, standing on the step stool into the carriage, one foot in the door. He glanced over his shoulder. I want to take Tien's place, Kaladin said. Not allowed, Rashon said from inside the carriage. The law says I may choose. Amaram nodded grimly. Then what if you take me as well, Kaladin said. Can I volunteer? That way, at least Tien wouldn't be alone. Kaladin, Hasina said, grabbing him on one arm. It is allowed, Amaram said. I will not turn away any soldier, son. If you want to join, you are welcome. Kaladin, no, Liren said. Don't both of you go. Don't! Kaladin looked at Tien, the boy's face wet beneath his wide-brimmed hat. He shook his head, but his eyes seemed hopeful. I volunteer, Kaladin said, turning back to Amaram. I'll go. Then you have two hours, Amaram said, climbing into the carriage. Same possession allotment as the others. The carriage doors shut, but not before Kaladin got a glimpse of an even more satisfied Rashon. Rattling, the vehicle splashed away, dropping a sheet of water from its roof. Why, Liren said, turning back to Kaladin, his voice ragged. Why have you done this to me? After all of our plans. Kaladin turned to Tien. The boy took his arm. Thank you, Tien whispered. Thank you, Kaladin, thank you. I've lost both of you, Liren said hoarsely, splashing away. Storm it, both of you. He was crying. Kaladin's mother was crying too. She clutched Tien again. Father, Kaladin said, turning, amazed at how confident he felt. Liren paused, standing in the rain, one foot in a puddle where rain spread clustered. They inched away from him like vertical slugs. In four years I will bring him home safely, Kaladin said. I promise it by the storms and the Almighty's tenth name himself, itself. I will bring him back. I promise. And that's the end of the chapter. So, did you ever expect that's how Kaladin would end up in the army? <laughs> I figured something similar. But don't worry, he's gonna bring Tien back. Uh-huh. I'm sure. It's not, like Kaladin is, it's not like Kaladin has been saying all book that Tien's dead. Don't worry about it. He won't go home without Tien, so he never goes home. I hope you liked Lyran and Hesina. <laughs> Chapter 45, Shadesmar. The epigraph reads, Yelignar, called Blightwind, was one that could speak like a man, though often his voice was accompanied by the wails of those he consumed. The unmade were obviously fabrications of folklore. Curiously, most were not considered individuals, but instead personifications of kinds of destruction. This quote is from Traxel. Line 33. Considered a primary source, though I doubt its authenticity. This is a Shalon chapter, and it starts with Shalon reading from King Gavilar's journal. And I'm just going to read what it says. They are an oddly welcoming group, these wild parshmen. It has now been nearly five months since our first meeting. Dalinar continues to pressure me to return to our homeland, insisting that the expedition has stretched too long. The Parshmen promise that they will lead me on a hunt for a great-shelled beast they call an Ulu Masvara, which my scholars say translates roughly to Monster of the Chasms. If their descriptions are accurate, these creatures have large gem hearts, and one of their heads would make a truly impressive trophy. They also speak of their terrible gods, and we think they must be referring to several particularly large chasm great-shells. We are amazed to find religion among these Parshmen. The mounting evidence of a complete parchment society with civilization, culture, and a unique language is astounding. My storm wardens have begun calling this people the Parshendi. It is obvious this group is very different from our ordinary servant parchment, and may not even be the same race despite the skin patterns. Perhaps they are distant cousins, as different from ordinary parchment as Alethi axehounds are from the Sile breed. The Parshendi have seen our servants and are confused by them. Where is their music? Clade will often ask me. I do not know what he means but our servants do not react to the Parshendi at all, showing no interest in emulating them. This is reassuring. The question about music may have to do with the humming and chanting the Parshendi often do. They have an uncanny ability to make music together. I swear that I have left one Parshendi singing to himself, then soon passed another out of earshot of the first yet singing the very same song, eerily near to the one to the other in tempo, tune, and lyric. Their favorite instrument is the drum. They are crudely made with handprints of paint marking the sides. This matches their simple buildings, which are constructs of creme and stone. They build them in the crater-like rock formations here at the edge of the shattered plains. I asked Clade if they worry about high storms, but he just laughs. Why worry? If the buildings blow down, we could build them again, can we not? Shalon puts that account away and picks up another record dictated by the storm warden Matane, who had accompanied the king. And that one reads, It happened after we set up beside a deep river in a heavily wooded area. 
who is an ideal location for a long-term camp as the dense cobwood trees would protect against high storm winds, and the river's gorge eliminated the risk of flooding. His Majesty wisely took my advice sending scouting parties both upriver and down. High Prince Dalinar's scouting party was the first to encounter the strange, untamed Parshman. When he returned to camp with his story, I, like many others, refused to believe his claims. Surely Bright Lord Dalinar had simply run across the Parshman servants of another expedition like our own. Once they visited our camp the next day, their reality could no longer be denied. There were ten of them, Parshman to be sure, but bigger than the familiar ones. Some had skin marbled black and red, and others were marbled white and red, as is more common in Alethkar. They carried magnificent weapons, the bright steel etched with complex decorations, but wore simple clothing of woven narbon cloth. Before long, His Majesty became fascinated by these strange Parshmen, insisting that I begin a study of their language and society. I'll admit that my original intent was to expose them as a hoax of some kind. The more we learned, however, the more I came to realize how faulty my original assessment had been. Shalon puts this record away and pulls out a book about Gavilar written by his widow Navani, and she reads a specific passage. My husband was an excellent king, an inspiring leader, an unparalleled du duelist, and a genius of battlefield tactics, but he didn't have a single scholarly finger in his, on his left hand. He never showed an interest in the accounting of high storms, was bored by talk of science, and ignored fabrials unless they had an obvious use in battle. He was a man built after the classical masculine ideal. Shalon closes the book and asks Yasna why Gavilar was so interested in the Parshendi when Navani said he wasn't a scholar. These accounts would have been before he knew about the Shardblades. Yasna said that the longer Gavilar remained in the unclaimed hills, the more fascinated by the Parshendi he became. She says that when he'd returned, she'd been encouraged by his interest. They'd spent many evenings talking about his discoveries, and it had been one of the only times she'd connected with her father. Shalon asks why Yasna wants her to study this when Yasna lived it, and the older woman tells her that she wants a fresh perspective on it. And Yasna says, uh, I'm going to read this quote from Yasna. I'm a Varys Titalian, Yasna said. We search for answers in the past, reconstructing what truly happened. To many, writing a history is not about truth, but about, but about presenting the most flattering picture of themselves and their motives. My sisters and I choose projects that we feel are, were misunderstood or misrepresented, and in studying them, hope to better understand the present. Shalon wondered why she was spending so much time studying fairy tales then. Yasna must be searching for something real and something important enough to draw her away from the shattered plains and the vengeance of her father. Their research excited Shalon, but Tazbek's ship arrived tomorrow morning and then she'd be gone. What is Urethiru? Shalon found herself asking. To her surprise, Yasna answered without hesitation. Urethiru was said to be the center of the Silver Kingdoms, a city that held ten thrones, one for each king. It was the most majestic, most amazing, most important city in all the world. Really? Why hadn't I heard of it before? Because it was abandoned even before the Lost Radiance turned against mankind. Most scholars consider it just a myth. The Ardents who refused to speak of it, due to its association with the Radiance, and therefore with the first major failure of Voronism. Much of what we know about the city comes from fragments of lost works quoted by classical scholars. Many of those classical works have themselves survived only in pieces. Indeed, the single most complete work we have from early years is The Way of Kings, and that is only because of the Vanriel's efforts. Shalon nodded so slowly. If there were ruins of a magnificent ancient city hidden somewhere, Natanatan, unexplored, overgrown wild, would be the natural place to find them. Uruthiru is not in Natanatan, Yasna said, smiling. But it is a good guess, Shalon. Return to your studies. The weapons, Shalon said. Yasna raised an eyebrow. The Parshendi, they carried beautiful weapons of fine etched steel, yet they used skin drums with crude handprints on the sides and lived in huts of stone and creme. Doesn't that strike you as in incongruous? Yes, I would certainly describe that as an oddity. Then, I assure you, Shalon, Yasna said, the city is not there. But you are interested in the Shattered Plains. You spoke of them with Bright Lord Dalinar through the Spanreed. I did. What were the Voidbringers? Now that Yasna was actually answering, perhaps she'd say. What were they really? Yasna studied her with a curious expression. Nobody knows for sure. Most scholars consider them, like Urethiru, mere myths, while theologians accept them as counterparts of the Almighty, monsters that dwelled in the hearts of men, much as the Almighty once lived there. But, return to your studies, child, Yasna said, raising her book. Perhaps we will speak of this another time. Shalon says she needs a copy of a biography on Gavilar and goes off to find it in the Palinaeum. Two hours later, Shalon was sitting at a desk on one of the lower floors, poring over books about the Voidbringers, but finding nothing useful. She decided to depart and ran into Capsule on her way out. He tells her that he'd gone looking for her where the biography on Galvalar was, and that she was about two floors away from it. She says that she was exhausted and needed a quiet place to relax, but he didn't buy it. 
Shalon said it's fine because Yasna will, and he asks again he asks again what she was doing, and she doesn't answer him. She tells him to come with her while she goes and gets the book she told Yasna she was going to find. She inspects the Palinaeum and says that it must have taken a lot of work to build. Capsule says that the formation was natural. Shalon asked why he didn't use it as one of his examples with cymatics, and he says that they haven't been able to find the right sand pattern yet, but that they're sure the Almighty made this place. So if you remember, the Palinaeum is like a giant, massive, hollowed-out rock, essentially. Like, they're inside this mountain, and there's just this massive, hollowed-out, kind of like an upside-down pyramid space in, in the center of it. Mm. Shalon asks if the Dawn Singers could have created it, and he says that there, this wasn't the kind of thing the Dawn Singers did. He said that they were healers, spread sent by the Almighty to care for humans. Capsule says that he won't be distracted by this conversation, especially after he sat with Yasna for an hour waiting for Shalon, and that had not been a pleasant experience. Shalon tells him that Yasna was studying the Voidbringers, and he seemed confused. As an ardent, he believed in them. And I'm gonna read from the book. What were they? She asked, walking out. Not far below, the massive cavern came to a point. There was a large infused diamond there, marking the Nadir. We don't like to talk about it, Capsule said as he joined her. Why not? You're an ardent. This is part of our, your religion. An unpopular part. People prefer to hear about the ten divine attributes, or the ten human failings. We accommodate them because we also prefer that to the past. Because, she prodded. Because, he said with a sigh, of our failure, Shalon. The devotories at their core are still classical Voridism. That means the heriocracy and the fall of the Lost Radiance are our shame. He held up his deep blue lantern. Shalon strolled at his side, curious, letting him just talk. We believe that the Voidbringers are real, Shalon. A scourge and a plague. A hundred times they came upon mankind. First, here, first casting us from the Tranquiline Halls, then trying to destroy us here on Roshar. They weren't just spren that hid under rocks, then came out to steal someone's laundry. They were creatures of terrible destructive power, forged in, forged in damnation, created from hate. By whom? Shalon asked. What? Who made them? I mean, the Almighty wasn't likely to have created something from hate, so what made them? Everything has its opposite, Shalon. The Almighty is a force of good. To balance his goodness, the Cosmere needed the Voidbringers as his opposite. They debate the theology of his explanation for a minute before Shalon pushes for more information. He shrugged as she guided him into an archive room filled with shelves of books. I told you the basics, Shalon. The Voidbringers were an embodiment of evil. We fought them off ninety and nine times, led by the Heralds and their chosen knights, the ten orders we call the Knights Radiant. Finally, Arhar... Ar Ahar Edium came. Uh, Ahar Edium. I feel like I'm pronouncing that wrong. Anyways, the Ahar Edium came. Spell it out. It's a uh, fucking. In chat. I'm going to. Um. I pronounced it correctly before, but now I'm like, Ahar. They're pronounced weird ways though, too. I'm trying to remember how the uh, audiobook says it, but that's that's how it's spelled. Ahar Edium. I don't think it's. I I don't Ahari think it's that. Ahari Yatim or something like that. Yeah, I'll yeah. have to look it up after this. Ahari Yatim or something. Uh, but it's it's the it's the last desolation. That's just what they call it. Hmm. Uh, the Voidbringers were cast back into the Tranquiline Halls. The Heralds followed to force them out of heaven as well. Oh, is that what happened, Capsule? And Roshar's heraldic ep epochs ended. Mankind uh, wait, entered the can, era of go solitude. Back. Yeah. Can you say all that again? I did not pick up on anything. Okay. I got distracted. He says, the Voidbringers were cast back into the Tranquiline Halls, and the Heralds followed to force them out of heaven as well. Which we know didn't happen, because in the prelude, we see that nine of the Heralds were like, all right, we're staying here. <laughs> Tolan can handle it himself. Uh, Roshar's heraldic epochs ended. Mankind entered the era of solitude, the modern era. But why is everything from before so fragmented? This was thousands and thousands of years ago, Shalon Capsule said. Before history, before men even knew how to forge steel. We had to be given shard blades, otherwise we would have had to fight the Voidbringers with clubs. And yet we had the Silver Kingdoms and the Knights Radiant, formed and led by the Heralds. Capsule says that Yasna is doing this research so that she can prove the Voidbringers never existed and prove the Radiance were liars, which would prove that Voronism was a fraud. Haven't we been scourged enough, Capsule said, eyes angry. The Ardents are no threat to her. We're not a threat to anyone these days. We can't own property. Damnation, we're property ourselves. 
We danced to the whims of the city lords and warlords, afraid to tell them the truth of their sins for fear of retribution. We're white spines, without tusks or claws, expected to sit at our master's feet and offer praise. Yet this is real. It's all real, and they ignore us, and... He cut off suddenly, glancing at her, lips tight, jaw clenched. She'd never seen such fervor, such fury from the pleasant ardent. She wouldn't have thought him capable of it. I'm sorry, he said, turning from her, leading the way back down the aisle. Shalon felt disappointed that Yasna's big secret of research could just be about disproving Voronism. She tells Kapsul that she'd be leaving in the morning, and he asks, about, he asks her to sketch him once before she leaves. They needed to go back up to get her drawing supplies, and as they walk, Kapsul seems hopeful that eventually she'll return to her wardship with Yasna. He assumes her father must be sick or something, and she points out that Yasna will eventually move on from Carbranth, and yet Kapsul says he shouldn't have spent so much time with her. He says that he's avoided work and disobeyed his superiors. She looked in his eyes and believed that he was in love with her, but she didn't feel the same way. She, she valued the research more than him, and that made her feel bad. <laughs> She's like, oh, he likes me, and I really care more about research. Capsule <laughs> <laughs> says that he could come with, return with her to Yakaved, and Shal's like, um, oh, uh, 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 and he's like, oh, uh, I definitely misread something, never mind. He says that at least he'll still get a sketch as they entered Yasna's alcove. The older woman looked up, the, looked up at them as they entered, but said nothing. Shalon posed Capsule, took a memory, and then began to sketch, holding back tears as she did so. She wasn't sure why she was crying, she wasn't the one who'd just been rejected. She finishes the sketch, and Capsule tries to pay her for it. She refuses, and he says that he'll just have to pay for a commission then, and then he asks her for a, a sketch of the two of them. Shalon accepts, asking Yasna for a mirror. She has Capsule hold it up next to his face and takes a memory of her face besides his. She began to draw the picture of the two of them, blending the reality of Capsule with the fiction of herself. As she drew, she considered her future. Did she dare try and stay behind while sending the Soulcaster back with Taz back? If she did so, she could stay in Carbranth. I'm going to read from the book here. Her sketching grew more and more fervent. She finished the figures and moved to the background. Quick, bold lines became the floor and the archway behind. A scribbled dark smudge for the side of the desk, casting a shadow. Crisp, thin lines for the lantern sitting on the floor. Sweeping, breeze-like lines to form the legs and robes of the creature standing behind... Shalom froze. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. Fingers drawing an unattended line of charcoal, breaking away from the figure she'd sketched directly behind a capsule. A figure that wasn't really there. A figure with a sharp, angular symbol hovering above its collar instead of a head. Shalon stood, throwing back her chair, sketch pad and charcoal pencil, clutched in the fingers of her uh, freehand. Shalon, capsule said, standing. She'd done it again. Why? The peace she'd begun to feel during the sketching evaporated in a heartbeat, and her heart started to race. The pressures returned. Capsule, Yasna, her brothers, decisions, choices, problems. Is everything all right, Capsule said, taking a step toward her. I'm sorry, she said. I, I made a mistake. He frowned. To the side, Yasna looked up, brow wrinkled. It's all right, Capsule said. Look, let's have some bread and jam. We can calm down, then you could finish it. I don't care about a- I need to go, Shalon cut in, feeling suffocated. I'm sorry. Shalon ran off and called for a lift. She looked up at the empty landing above her and found herself blinking, memorizing the scene. She began sketching again. She drew with concise motions, a sketch pad held against her safe arm. For illumination, she had just two very small spheres at either side where the taut ropes quivered. She moved without thought, just drawing, staring upward. She looked down at what she had drawn. Two figures stood on the landing above wearing the two straight robes like cloth made from metal. They leaned down, watching her go. Mango, I'd like to ask, do you remember the very first picture I showed you when we started this book? That's at the very beginning of the book. Nope. Let me see if I can pull it back up again really quick, because that's the picture she just uh, sketched. So that, that, that photo wasn't oh. originally at the uh, beginning of the book, but they added it in um, editions after the first one. Mm. But that's what she just drew. She said two figures. Um, I think the drawing might be wrong then, but it's supposed to signify that 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 scene where she's looking up at them. Mm. She looked up again. The landing was empty. What's happening to me? She thought with increasing horror. When the lift hit the ground, she scrambled away, her skirt fluttering. She all but ran to the exit of the veil, hesitating beside the doorway, ignoring the master servants and ardents who gave her confused looks. 
Shalon ran into the main cavern. Almost against her will, she blinked and took a memory. She raised her pad again, gripping her charcoal pencil in slick fingers. Quickly sketching the crowded cavern scene, just faint impressions. Men of lines, women of curves, walls of sloping rock, carpeted floor, bursts of light, and sphere lanterns on the walls. And five symbol-headed figures in black, two-stiff robes and cloaks. Each had a different symbol, twisted and unfamiliar to her, hanging above a necklace torso. The creatures ro wove through the crowd unseen, like predators, focused on Shallan. I'm just imagining it, she tried to tell herself. I'm overtaxed. Too many things weighing on me. Did they represent her guilt? The stress of betraying Yasna and lying to Capsule? The things she had done before leaving Yakoved? She tried to stand there, waiting, but her fingers refused to remain still. She blinked, then started drawing again on a new sheet. She finished with a shaking hand. The figures were almost to her. Angular knotheads hanging horrifically where faces should have been. Logic warned that she was overreacting, but no matter what she told herself, she couldn't believe it. These were real, and they were coming for her. She ran to her rooms, climbed into her bed, and backed up as far as she could against the wall. She stared out at the empty room. Don't do it, she thought. Just sit and calm yourself. She felt a growing chill, a rising terror. She had to know. She scrambled to pull out the charcoal, then blinked and began to sketch her room. Ceiling first, four straight lines, down the walls, lines at the corners. Her fingers kept moving, drawing, depicting the pad itself held before her, her safe hound shrouded and bracing the pad from behind, and then on, to the beings standing around her, twisted symbols unconnected to their uneven shoulders, those knot heads at unreal angles, surfaces that melded in weird, impossible ways. The creatures at the front was the creature at the front was reaching two smooth fingers toward Shallan, just inches from the right side of the sketch pad. Oh, Stormfather, Shallan thought, charcoal pencil falling still. The room was empty, yet depicted right in front of her was an image of it crowded full of sleek figures. They were close enough that she should be able to feel them breathing, if they breathed. Was there a chill in the room? Hesitantly, terrified, but unable to stop herself, Shallan dropped her pencil and raised her free hand to the right and felt something. She screamed then. <laughs> she screamed then, jumping to her feet, dropping the pad, backing against the wall. Before she could consciously think of what she was doing, she was struggling with her sleeve, trying to get the Soulcaster out. It was the only thing that she had resembling a weapon. No, that was stupid. She didn't know how to use it. She was helpless. Except... Storms, she thought, frantic. I can't use that. I promised myself. She began the process anyways. Ten heartbeats to bring forth the fruit of her sin, the proceeds of her most horrific act. So, Mango. Uh -huh. You know what that means. Uh -huh. What does that mean? For Tell me. Go ahead. She has a shard blade. So, all the way back in, like, one of her first chapters, she has a panic attack. And she talks about, like, how her heart's beating super fast. And she starts to think about the weapon hidden heartbeats away. But it was before you knew what a shard blade was. But uh, when I was rereading it, I was like, holy fuck, this is really well seated. Ten heartbeats to bring forth the fruit of her sin, the proceeds of her most horrific act. She was interrupted midway through by a voice, uncanny yet distinct. What are you? She clutched her hand to her chest, losing her balance on the soft bed, falling to her knees on the rumpled blanket. She put one hand to the side, steadying herself on the nightstand, fingers brushing the large glass goblet that sat there. What am I? she whispered. I'm terrified. This is true. The bedroom transformed around her. The bed, the nightstand, her sketch pad, the walls, the ceiling, everything seemed to pop, forming into tiny, dark glass spheres. She found herself in a place with a black sky and a strange, small white sun that hung on the horizon, too far away. Shallan screamed as she found herself in midair, falling backward in a shower of beads. Flames hovered nearby, dozens of them, perhaps hundreds, like the tips of candles floating in the air and moving in the wind. She hit something, an endless dark sea, except it wasn't wet. It was made of the small beads, an entire ocean of tiny glass spheres. They surged around her, moving in an, un undul an undulating swell. She gasped, flailing, trying to stay afloat. You want me to change? A warm voice said in her mind, distinct and different from the cold whisper she had heard earlier. It was deep and hollow and conveyed a sense of great age. It seemed to come from her hand, and she realized she was grasping something there, one of the beads. The movement of the ocean of glass threatened to tow her down. She kicked frantically, somehow managing to stay afloat. I've been as I am for a great long time, the warm voice said. I sleep so much. 
I will change. Give me what you have. I don't know what you mean. Please help me. I will change. She felt suddenly cold as if the warmth were being drawn from her. She screamed as the beads in her fingers flared to sudden warmth. She dropped it just as a shift in the ocean swell around and the ocean swell towed her under, beads rolling over one another with a soft clatter. She fell back and hit her bed back in her room. Beside her, the goblet on her nightstand melted, the glass becoming red liquid, dropping the three spheres inside to the nightstand's flooded top. The red liquid poured over the sides of the nightstand, splashing to the floor. Shallan pulled back, horrified. The goblet had been changed into blood. Oh. Shallan had soul-cast the goblet into blood. A lot of blood. She hadn't put on the soul-caster, yet she'd used it anyways. Shallan? It was Yasna's voice. Just outside Shallan's room. The princess must have followed her. Shallan felt a spike of terror as she saw a line of blood leaking toward the doorway. It was almost there and would pass underneath in a heartbeat. Why did it have to be blood? Nauseated, she leaped to her feet, slippers soaking up the red liquid. Shallan, Yasna said, voice closer. What was that sound? Shallan looked frantically at the blood, then at the sketchpad, filled with pictures of the strange creatures. What if they what if they did have something to do with the soul casting? Yasna would recognize them. There was a shadow under the door. She panicked, tucking the sketchpad away in her trunk, but the blood it would condemn her. There was enough that only a life threatening wound could have created it. Yasna would see, she'd know. Blood where there should be none? One of the ten essences? Yasna was going to know what Shallan had done. And here we go. It's, this is definitely a decision that Shallan's about to make. Oh. A thought struck Shallan. Wasn't a brilliant thought, but it was a way out, and it was the only thing that occurred to her. She went to her knees and grabbed a shard of the broken glass pitcher in her safe hand through the fabric of her sleeve. She took a deep breath, pulled up her right sleeve, then used the glass to cut a shallow gash in her skin. In the panic of the moment, it barely even hurt. Blood welled out. As the doorknob turned and the door opened, Shallan dropped the glass shard and lay on her side. She closed her eyes, feigning unconsciousness. The door swung open. Yasna gasped, immediately calling for help. She rushed to Shallan's side, grabbing her arm and putting pressure on the wound. Shallan mumbled as if she were barely conscious. Gripping her safe pouch and the soul caster inside with her safe hand, they wouldn't open it, would they? She pulled her arm closer to her chest, cowering silently as more footsteps and calls sounded. Servants and parchment running into the room. Yasna shouting for more help. This, Shallan thought, will not end well. And that's the end of that chapter. <laughs> Remember when I told you to buckle up? Yeah. Next week, we will finish, uh, we will finish part three. Mm-hmm. Next week will be the rest of this part. Bingo! Yes. Shallan has a shard blade. She does. Shallan soul cast. By accident. And where did she go? A world with a dark sky and an ocean of glass beads. Interesting. An interesting, interesting thing. Um. But she soul cast without needing the soul caster, or at least not needing to touch it. Yes. She, she wasn't assumes even wearing that it. It was like in her bag. She is. She thinks that she must have used it from a distance. What do you think? I think she just did that on her own. Interesting theory. Next week. Oh, uh, <laughs> next week. Next week, uh, we'll we'll get resolution for Shalon. This part, what's happening right here. Um. <laughs> and also, we'll find out what happened in Amaram's army. Mm -hmm. For now, though, Mango, uh, where can people find you online? <laughs> you can find me on Twitch at Mango Asteroid. Where can people find you, Sean? On Twitter at Sean underscore AFK. You guys can follow this podcast on Twitter at, at @speakstormlight. We're on Anchor, Anchor.fm slash SpeakTheWords. You guys can send us voice messages. Uh, you guys can send us an email at SpeakTheWordsASP at gmail.com. And uh, the cover art was done by at Tyler Tyler Ims. Uh, 
Thanks, everybody, for joining. We'll see you guys next week. But uh, for now, Mango, would you like to do the outro? Life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. <laughs> that was one hell of a ride. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>